0: Fortnite in Film is a podcast where every week you get the chance to listen in on a group of film lovers chatting about the great, or not so great, movies that we've been watching over the past fortnight. Hello and welcome to episode 29 of a Fortnite in Film. I'm your host Jason.
1: I'm your co-host Christian.
0: Thanks for tuning in. We've got a few highly rated films to discuss today. Yeah, uh, we do. All three films are sitting at an average of four or more on Letterboxd. So uh, my pick's sitting at 4.1. Uh, yours is sitting at 4.3 and actually sneaks into the top 50 of a uh, Letterboxd, top 250, and number 48. And George's pick is sitting at 4.0. So we've got um, very highly acclaimed films to discuss. And, and perhaps more importantly for the podcast... Uh, this is the first time, actually, since we moved to our you know current format of discussing uh, three, three films in episode, this is the first time since that episode, episode 15, all the way back in January, that I've given all three films four stars or more. Oh,
1: really? Nice. See, I, I haven't looked at your ratings. Um, I have been... We were talking about this before we started recording, but I'm I'm very very behind. I'm I'm like nine film reviews and like five or six book reviews behind, and uh, I've just been working so much, and you know we got the baby and everything. Um, so I, I'm very very behind. So I have not shared my ratings, uh, but I also have not been looking at anyone else's. So that's very encouraging. This ought to be a good episode.
0: It is. We're going to be very positive. Heads up: the film we're about to discuss may contain spoilers. For a list of the movies we cover this week. Check out the description. Let's kick it off with my pick, um, which is Arrival from 2016, um, directed by uh, Dennis I always want to say Denis Villeneuve because it sounds better, but I believe it's actually Dennis Villeneuve. So, <laughs> you, th- wait, you think Villeneuve feels? Yeah, it, it sounds, sounds like better. M- more think? like Villeneuve. You know? I am Mr. Villanueve. Yeah, eh, that's cool. I don't know if
1: it's that romantic when you mis- mispronounce stuff, so.
0: Ouch. <laughs> We're going to have a positive episode. Wave. <laughs> <here. laughs> I love that. Dennis Villeneuve. Um uh, stars Amy Adams, uh, Jeremy Renner, and Forrest Whitaker in the main roles. Your, the plot for your pick is is fairly straightforward. F- the the plot for my pick and George's pick is a bit more... Um, it, it takes a little unraveling, yeah. Yeah, it takes a bit more explanation, so I'll try my best. So uh, Amy Adams uh, plays a woman called Louise Banks, uh, who's a linguist, um, and at the start of the film, in a, in a brief sort of prologue, I guess it is, her young daughter is shown to have died um, from, you know, looks like cancer, but, you know, some sort of disease. Alien spacecraft come to Earth, um, and I guess they're in the shape of something like a monolith would sort of be how I would describe it. It's it, it's not like a typical, like, UFO flying saucer thing. It's it's kind of like a half an egg shape. It's not, you know, monolo- mon- the, the
1: monoliths in the um, Kubrick films were, I mean, like long slabs. This is kind
0: of like... Uh, i guess um so there's 12 of those who come to earth um in different cities around the world um one of them uh lands in the state of montana so the army recruits uh banks to you know study the aliens and and communicate with them along with a physicist called ian donnelly who is played by jeremy renner so they make contact with with the aliens they communicate uh, not by words they, they they look like squid is probably the best way to squ- describe them and they sort of squirt ink out of their like tentacles or whatever and the ink makes shapes which they attempt to decode uh, into words and you know at, at the time this is happening or every country in the world or you know Certainly, the countries that are affected, are, you know, they're all working together trying to figure out what the aliens want, what they're saying, etc. They figure out that one of the statements the alien gives them is offer weapon. That's what they translate it as offer weapon. Uh, but the Chinese translate it as use weapon. Um, so they assume that the aliens are here for some nefarious purpose to attack them. Actually, I should say so that they. What the aliens say is in response to, you know, the, the, the linguists ask the aliens, you know, why are you here? You know, what do you want? And they respond off a weapon, which the Chinese interpreters use weapon, which they, you know, in their head means, oh, they're here to attack us, right? They're here to kill us. They, they go back into uh, the, the alien vessel. There's some rogue soldiers who sort of plant some explosives in there because they think the alien's going to kill them, so they try and kill them first. The military, you know... Uh, you know, prepares to evacuate uh, in order to retaliate, and the craft sort of moves away to where it can't be accessed anymore. After that, you know, Banks and Donnelly, who are sort of working together trying to decode these things, figure out that the message that the aliens are communicating is split across all 12 Vessels in the world, and that the aliens want want all the countries, you know, affected to 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 share their knowledge and, and you know piece together the message. And so Banks goes back to the craft by herself, and aliens reveal that because there is two aliens, they reveal that one of them died in the explosion. It says to Banks that the aliens there to help humanity um, because in three thousand years in the future they will need humanity's help. Um, and she realizes that a weapon that they referred to is not a weapon, but it's the aliens' language. And when you learn of it, when you learn it, it sort of alters your perception of time, and you can sort of see things, you know, in the future. You have memories of future events, you know, where it's revealed that at that point, Banks's daughter, at this point, she's experiencing flash forwards, right? Her, bo- her her daughter. At this point, in the film it's not. We're led to believe she's already died, but we we learn that she's not even born yet, and that these these memories she's had of her are actually flash forward. She's actually, you know, seeing what's going to happen in the future. She has another premonition where she's at a UN event, you know, c- celebrating the world coming together. The Chinese uh, general, who's sort of in, in charge of China's response uh, to the whole thing. Uh, thanks her because she called him um, in the midst of this and said what his dying wife's words would be all right now you got to repeat them though oh yeah, they, they? yes they were war doesn't make winners only widows you don't speak mandarin <laughs> no i know i don't actually surprise actually i'm gonna get <laughs> into that later on that's another point of mine is about language oh, okay. um mm-hmm. you know she, she has this flash forward of there's been peace because she's done this. So she, you know, in the present tense, she she calls the general and she she tells him, you know, what his dying wife's words are, and and everything is saved, and you know the aliens leave because the world has come together, um, and you know every every country has released their part of a message, and at the end of the film, you know, banks banks and Donnelly, you know, we 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 see that they've gotten together, and you know they've had this child together, you know that what we saw at the start of the film was. Banks knew this was going to happen in the sense of she knew that her daughter would die and she knew that her husband, Donnelly, would, would leave her, um, because she knew that. And the film ends. Um that was probably somewhat of a jumbled <laughs> explanation. It it I feel like it's one of those films you have to watch to to, to understand. You it's hard it's hard to explain it to someone who hasn't seen it. You just sort of have to watch it and experience it.
1: Yeah and the, and the way the plot sort of unfurls I think is very intricate and uh, very very deliberate and well timed mm, definitely well delivered yeah. um
0: so this was a rewatch for me I'd seen it years ago I couldn't really I couldn't really remember what happened I remembered the the general gist that like aliens you know came to earth and it was this linguist who had to communicate but I couldn't remember anything else um, so I thought it was great I gave it I gave it 4 stars um what did you think I thought it was
1: fabulous. Um, it might be a five five star film for me. I'm trying to kind of talk myself out of it so I can be stingy with those five star ratings. You know, um, I'm doing my best here, but it's it's really started. It, it just kind of wins you over. Um, first of all, it is one of the better science fiction films that is grounded in like present time, more or less. Uh, that that's come out in some time. You know, supporting all the other things it does well that are novel, you have things like an amazing production value, a great cast. Everyone was casted very well. The performances were incredible. Amy Adams is one of my favorite performers of all time. Uh, This is just another example of how great she is. She gives these amazingly nuanced performances with the, you know, these facial expressions that just say more than the dialogue even. But it's also just a really tender and just tragic film her child is destined to die based on a decision of hers and i could understand the husband leaving because he was so upset about that you know that the, he said that you made the wrong choice because the choice was to kill her if you think about it the choice was to kill their daughter by by making the choice to have their daughter that was really uh this this movie did bring me to tears it's going to go in the cry baby pl- uh, playlist um, stuff that stuff that has to do with like kids and the relationship with your children and stuff just gets to me more now that I'm a father, honestly. I loved what it did with language and um, that language can actually affect perceptions like that. It turned it into a literal example that it affects your, your perception of time, that a nonlinear language, once you master it, you know, brings on this nonlinear thinking. It actually reminded me of a book from the late 90s called The Sparrow. Uh, written by Mary Doria Russell. Have you ever heard of this?
0: No, I haven't.
1: I read this probably at least a decade ago. Um, but it, it also is, I mean, it's kind of like a hard science fiction that that takes place in the near future, you know, nothing too extravagant. It, you know, it focuses on language barriers between, you know, uh, you human beings meeting another species. And the general gist of, and it sets up similarly, you know, instead of uh, us being visited in the book, we are visiting another world. And what happens is they, they, there's a, um, I think it was in Puerto Rico or something, but there's a, a you know, a listening post, you know, lit, looking for signs of alien life and they hear music. They hear music and, and that is kind of the first sign of alien life is music. And what they ended up finding out later was that the this civilization had discovered the technology to broadcast music. And when they broadcast it, it actually bounced off their moon and headed out in space uh, to us. And so that was the first thing that we found from them. And so they send, uh, before the governments can do it, like the Catholic church actually sends a mission out first of, uh, Jesuits actually, I think. And and there's this priest who's like one of the most gifted linguists on the planet. They send him out and it takes kind of a weird dark turn once they get there, but they do land and they, they do meet the civilization and he, and, and the book does a really good job of like uh, highlighting how difficult it would be to learn an alien language and um, it's, it's just very nuanced and very instructive and you learn so much more about language itself and you kind of to probably a lesser degree actually you do that in arrival um, but it's just woven so seamlessly into this greater story and this this tragedy This is like a tragedy the Greeks didn't even think of. You know what I mean? It's such a unique angle. And it's just that it just had to tie in this little personal tragedy in with this greater story. And you see how she treats it the same way a personal tragedy, her personal tragedy tied up into what is a greater story. And she's still like a part of that. And it's there's just so much to unpack with this film. It's extremely emotional, it's so well delivered realistic within the bounds that it has set for itself, if that makes any sense. The, the world that it has set up is in many ways kind of feasible. Um, and and it's it's kind of just one look at how first contact might work. And and in that sense, you know, even on the most shallow level, you can look at this as kind of a thought experiment. And I, I think it works for that as well. Picking up where you just left off.
0: And, you know, I thought it broke down the role that linguistics plays in our society you know, in an interesting way because, you know, if you look at it at a completely surface level, it's say, like, oh, this is a science fiction film about aliens coming to Earth. Well, yeah, it is, but it's about, like you said, more deeper themes than that. Um, and, you know, like, uh, imagine how hard it is to interpret a new language. It's, it's not even a language, actually, because you're not even speaking. It's it's through these, these weird, inky shape things that are generated, right? Right, it's very visual. Yeah, imagine how hard it is to interpret that when even between you know speakers of the same language there's miscommunication and misinterpretation all the time and then and then you're expected to okay what do these shapes mean that you've never seen before that's being communicated by these creatures we've never come across before and you know there's that there's that conversation that banks and donnelly have when they first meet in a helicopter and he he reads you know an excerpt of her work to her where she says you know uh, language is the backbone of society and he says well i think science is the backbone of society and initially i thought oh yes i agree with him you know science is the you know the foundation of the world blah blah, blah. but then it vindicates the linguist <laughs> <laughs> well but, but then i thought about it some more and i thought well science existed before society before we were around as humans science was around because science created us as humans that's how we came about right but if you look at language well, and it sense sure i mean you know, language itself is a science if you think about it i don't, I don't think that's the message the movie was going for though <laughs> i know I, i'm not saying it's the message but i mean it's it, you know if you look at something like language you know we created language right like we did not create science and if we didn't have language in society how would we communicate you know like science is there right gravity is still there physics is still there biology is still there but we maybe
1: i'm descending into semantics but i think science science is the way that we understand the natural world around us gravity is part of the natural world around us i think science in in the sense that they were inferring is kind of a human construct because it's it's the means of study and observation because the world isn't science science looks at the world true but but the world is also made up of science it's made up of things that science studies <laughs> i don't, maybe i maybe i'm taking this in a different direction
0: yeah i mean I, I guess the point i was trying to make was just that the film you realize how important that line is and how important and how important language is to society because before that like you know the average person doesn't think about linguistics in their day-to-day life you know the only people who think about it are professional linguists um you know maybe people who can speak a second language or who are studying another language most people don't think about linguistics on a day-to-day basis but you realize like like you know what what her character wrote in the film like language is the basis of, of you know society in a sense because like I said if we didn't have language how would we communicate I mean I know people communicated before language came about but I mean can you imagine now if we if if we didn't speak well
1: even a non-verbal communication is a type of language and and that's something that the movie sets out
0: to prove as well for me one of the things I took away from this film is how important language is not just in the terms of if aliens were to ever visit us, but just like in a day-to-day sense for the world. And, and it, it, it's instructive
1: into what kind of a barrier it's, it's, I think it's actually pulling its punches into um, kind of discussing what kind of a barrier it's going to be to another, you know, uh, alien life. But I, I think that line is really important, but I think it was set up to kind of vindicate the, the linguist, uh, but you know, between the two. And um, because if, if you look at it at the end, like all of his science, didn't save the day it was language that saved the day was it was uh, using that as a bridge for understanding
0: yeah Uh, and that's my point exactly okay
1: yeah i I was misunderstanding i guess yeah but um yeah it it has a lot to say it's a gorgeous film despite having a really muddy color palette um it still manages to be kind of beautiful um it's it's just kind of well delivered and polished and and it's sensitive and it's introspective Very emotional, Um,
0: very emotional film. It's and
1: certain parts were hard to watch.
0: Yeah, on a technical level, I actually it wasn't until I looked it up. I actually thought Hans Zimmer scored this. It wasn't. It was actually someone called Johan Johansson.
1: Yeah, that threw me off too. Actually, it does sound like such a but it
0: sounded so much like a Zimmer score. I know it really Um, does because it's just so like emotive and moving. But then other times, you know, it's like off-putting and and you know, like it it was the score and the music that was used was just fantastic i loved um and it's been used in other pieces of, of films and tv i loved it um, a it's actually the sort of theme of a the film it's at the start and i believe it's also at the end um a piece by max Wichter called on the nature of daylight
1: yes i actually have heard that song uh come up a few times on like relaxing spotify playlists
0: and then i'll hear it and i'll just want to start fucking crying i was like cuz it's a <laughs> fucking arrival <laughs> i mean you're saying a lot of people associate it with arrival i actually associate it with uh, there's a TV show, which not a lot of people know about, um, because I think it was actually um, cancelled after uh, two seasons. It was one of those shows which was fantastic, in my opinion, but then it gets cancelled after two seasons, which was just ridiculous. It was a, a, a psychological horror show, um, sort of an, I don't know if you call it an anthology, it's hard to describe. It's called Castle Rock. Um, And it was, I've never heard know, it. It, it's based on, oh, well, exactly, no one's heard of it, <laughs> um, but it, it was, it was based on, you know, characters and settings and themes from Stephen King. And so it sort of interwove different people from his novels into, into these stories. And there's a, there's a fantastic scene in, in uh, season one, an episode called The Queen, I believe it is. Um, It's fantastic flashback scene uh, with a character played by Sissy Spacek. And um and it's just such an incredible scene and and that and on the nature of daylight is used using that scene and, I, and I've always associated with that whenever I hear that piece of music I always think back to that scene and think damn that was good, um but yeah I mean that that you know that piece of music and really as I said the overall score was fantastic, um the cinematography I thought was 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 great as you'd expect from a a Villeneuve film <laughs> yeah right. Villeneuve I uh, know. <laughs> a few scenes that um stood out for me, you know, from a, a, a camera work perspective. I mean, I think one of the first ones, you know, when they first hear about the aliens and she, she's in the classroom and, and you, you hear them talking on TV and you, you don't even see what they're watching. You just see the, the camera slowly panning in on the students, which is scary because when you're left to think, well, what what does it look like? What is happening? You know, you're left to fill in the gaps of your imagination. And then, you know, when they first, you know, when they're getting there on a helicopter and they first see the alien vessel you know and it's this great panning shot and when you see the camp and there's that really like discordant music you know and and then when they're going up in the elevator to the to the vessel and there's again there's really like jarring music and and they sort of go over the the sort of edge of the thing and you see you know you see the the scale of it and, and they've got the glass wall there which just makes it look so much you know bigger and imposing than it is um I thought that was just fantastic. And, and there were so many little things that Villeneuve captured
1: too. Uh, and one of the, the little things that really stood out to me when I rewatched this was, do you, do you remember when the, uh, the, you know, they're on the elevator and then they go up to the top and they're able to touch the hull and then the elevator starts moving to, you know, the side. And he's, and he, the scientist, the guy played by, uh, what's his name? Shit. Jeremy Renner? Yeah, Jeremy Renner. Thank, Thank you. Me. Sorry, I'm terrible with names. Um, but he he sticks up his hand and he's running his finger along the hull as it moves and then it, it just captures this shot of the hand moving towards the camera and then his finger sort of leaps off the hall into the abyss of the open door and and it just feels like you're leaving a familiar sensation behind and you really feel like you're diving into the unknown and it, it was such a great little scene that communicated so much um Really just a wealth of feeling. There's just so many ways to interpret this movie. But one thing that, and maybe this is just my interpretation and this was never intended, but the, the way that the main character sees her future daughter and knows that her daughter is going to die uh, with of a rare disease when she's young and decides to have her daughter anyway because she, I mean, call it whatever you want, doesn't want to fight fate or doesn't want to change the future or or is you know deterministic or or what have you but you know they the aliens said that the language was a weapon that they were giving to them and if you think about it it kind it, it strikes me that her having this tragic sort of circumstance arise from this weapon that she was given it just like any other weapon there is collateral damage even something as unconventional as this. This isn't a weapon that shoots or explodes, but it's it is still a weapon. It is still used that way and it still has collateral damage. And she is that collateral damage. Her daughter is is that collateral damage. Would she have had a daughter if she wasn't exposed to this? Like who knows? Probably not, really, because they brought this brought those two characters together. That you know, it is a collateral damage just like any other weapon. And um it makes it feel like this communication vessel, but it, it also demonstrates the the versatility of
0: language how it can be used as a weapon uh, I, I think that's a really good point and you know that that twist well, really be two twists but you know first of all we realize that what she's seeing are flash forwards and then we realize that oh okay the father was 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 donling that you know he she knew ahead of time you know i thought that certainly the twist at the end certainly got me i didn't see that coming at all yeah the first time
1: i watched it, it, it i did not see that coming um it was very effective the way it was delivered. This time, of course, I did remember that part, and and uh, it still had a, an impact, to be sure.
0: Yeah, I guess to me, it had more of an impact. Cause I'd forgotten that it had happened. So. Lucky you! Um, that's the best way to go into a film, isn't it? Though, <laughs> <laughs> having no idea. I mean, that's, that's why I try. Like I ch- tr- try generally, unless it's like a favorite film of mine. Yeah. I try generally not to rewatch a film if I can remember it, because I, I sort of want to forget it, and so that I can you know, rewatch it as new again as such. Yeah, I thought Amy Adams was uh, fantastic. Initially, I came out of it, and I thought, oh, my God, everyone was such good, you know, everyone put in such good performance. And when I thought about it, this morning, I'm like, hmm, like, Amy Adams was a standout. You know, like, I, I love Jeremy Renner as an actor, He was fine. I mean, I wouldn't say he was amazing, but he was, you know, he was fine. He
1: he wasn't the standout performance of this movie, but he's a very good actor. Uh, He was really good in Hurt Locker. That's one of the where he really stood out for me.
0: Yeah, that's that's my favorite film of his. I love that film.
1: That was one of his more memorable roles. This he's he's just very, very good in this movie, but he's not like the standout person. Um, Also, Forrest Whitaker did a great like East Coast accent. Holy shit. It's just me. He sounded great. I mean, does he sound different normally? I I don't know how he normally sounds. I don't. I don't know what I would say his normal accent is. I guess, but he definitely did an accent in this movie, and I I thought it was very um, a very good take on that accent. It's not an accent from a region where I'm from, but uh, it sounded more East Coast to me. Um, but no, I I thought it was very. I th- he did good accent work, in my opinion.
0: Well, did we want to move on to your pick?
1: Yes. uh, I picked Paths of Glory from 1957, 1957. uh, 88 minutes long, but directed by Stanley Kubrick. General synopsis is, uh, uh, as you said, it's more straightforward. A commanding officer defends three scapegoats on trial for a failed defensive that occurred within the French Army in 1916. It's sitting at a 4.3 average. Absolutely phenomenal. By the way, um, Kirk Douglas. It. I mean, is Michael Douglas not a direct fucking clone or what? It's inc- like they even sound the same. I forgot that this was not Michael Douglas at first. And then I'm like, oh, of course, it's the 50s. Of course, it's not fucking Michael Douglas. But, you know, you forget it for a minute. I mean, they're identical. It's crazy. It had a really, really good performance from uh, from Kirk Douglas. I mean, the man was extremely talented. Great. Stanley Kubrick setups and shots. Um, Everything is purposeful. And some of the best uh, examples are where it's, it's following, you know, officers through the trenches and, you know, they're kind of walking towards the camera and everything is just set pieced perfectly on either side. You know, everything is, everything is exactly where it should be. It's typical Stanley Kubrick movie. Everything is where it should be. Yeah. But basically there's a, uh, uh, you know, tale as old as time when you read world war one, shit, big generals, you know, they, they, they think they, you know, on paper that, uh, you know, it's simple measure of casualties and numbers and, you know, the the uh, advance is gained in, in such small increments that they decide they're going to have a big offensive. They're going to t- take this uh, section called the Ant Hill. I don't remember which part of the battlefield this was supposed to be in. You know, it's supposed to be the French Army and they're supposed to attack the Germans, take this hill, and then hold it until the evening where they can get reinforcements, uh, which knowing them are probably not coming. They, uh, have artillery support. Um, I did like the attention to detail the, you know, when the, when the offensive fails, uh, cause you know, part of the, uh, the unit does not leave the trenches and, you know, the general starts yelling the, the, the artillery advance is getting away from them it's getting away from them. And that was a really good attention to detail because one of the things they would do is they would fire the artillery in a way that it would move in a line up through no man's land, up to the positions. They called it walking up the artillery and the, the, the forces would follow behind the explosions, and it was supposed to be very well timed and uh, meticulous, so that when the explosion stopped, you know the advance would be almost at the enemy line. That was a very good attention to detail, but uh, it didn't uh, make a difference because in the movie, you know, some of the soldiers don't leave the trenches, and the general uh, is very upset and tries to order his own artillery to fire on his own men, uh, saying that they are mutinying. And of course, the order is refused. This is used against him later for turns out to be political reasons. It was supposed to be amnesty reasons. And um, yeah, uh, Kirk Douglas, character is one of the officers who was in charge of this assault, and he knew that his men w- did not behave um, in a way that, you know, warranted the cowardice label. But the generals were upset the, the, that it didn't work. And so they decide to pick three men. Uh, one from each company to have them executed as an example for cowardice. And it's so instructive that we, you know, kind of the way they did this, it was much more about the the image of of performing discipline and that they thought this would actually help morale, which we know now was not the case. You know, one guy um, fell back uh, because he was alone, basically. And what is he going to do? Charge the whole line alone? So he fell back. Another guy was chosen randomly by lots which uh, the tribunal actually said was fine. It was uh, old practice in the French military, which is just, it, it just, this shit is just laughable. And another one was knocked unconscious before he could leave the trenches and they called him a coward. And, you know, Kirk Douglas is very upset about this. So he actually was a trial lawyer in France before the war, his character. And so he decides he's going to defend them in a court martial. And the court martial is just a kangaroo court, completely fucking rigged. The whole thing is just, to satisfy these generals who do not take personal responsibility for their actions are very callous about the lives of their men. This was a very common theme in World War I. It's a common theme today when you read about it. Um, this is something that, that people were very embittered about for decades and decades afterwards. I mean, how many countless people died because these generals were like this, you know, that they, and they, and they're, and, and you see a little bit of this towards the end, but they're famous for this. These generals after World War I, you know, they'll they'll do this after the war they will writing memoirs and they'll defend their own actions and they'll snipe at each other. And they're very they're very, you know, needly about their peers and, and their reputations. And and, and it, you just contrast that with the, the average Joes who are out on the line and then they're going to they're going to die for nothing. In the case of the three men that are executed, they they really died for nothing. Uh, fun fact, too. Uh, one of the guys who was executed was the bartender in The Shining. Oh, did you know, that? No,
0: I did not know that.
1: Yeah, it's the guy who was uh, selected randomly. I love history. Um, I feel like everyone who loves history says I do like is a big World War aficionado. I am also it's not my favorite thing in history to study, but it is fascinating. And I tend to gravitate to- more towards World War One than the second. Uh, I don't know why there's just something about the majestic old world marching off and not surviving the realities of the new world. There's just something that, um, this contrast, I guess, this uh, optimism just sort of fading away with all these old world values that we look at as so quaint now. There's something about that that's always appealed to me. And um, But this captures and, and really digs into the really much more embittered parts of it um the the disaffected you know the the, the pointlessness of it um kind of reminds me of uh it's almost like a less grisly a less grisly version of like a johnny got his gun you ever see that one no i don't think so i'm not going to tell you anything about it just go watch it but it's another world war one film it's, it's it's very anti-war and um this I, I i guess you would call this an anti-war movie yes
0: well yeah that's what it's described as
1: I, it's hard for me to look at it as an anti-war film. I know that's what it is, but it's hard for me to see it in that light because it's very specific about anti-this war, this particular war, and this particular war because of how senseless it was. Like, be, you know, other wars, you could you could make the argument that there are losses and there is tragedy, but it is for a purpose. And this is one of the things that the First World War is always known, is one of the things it's very known for is that um, you you spend, you know, the idea of, combat is to spend lives for a goal. But in world war one, there was just so much of spending lives for nothing where it was, it was literally wasted, just a waste. You would waste your men's lives because they're unlikely to accomplish, you know, in these wave attacks, what their brethren could not accomplish three years ago, doing the same wave attacks in the same spots. And it's very um, anti-general, anti-leadership, um, just, just the callousness. It, it falls into greater themes, certainly, but I, I feel like it's just so specific to this scenario and this situation and, and this part of history that I, you know, I look at it as I look at it much more as an anti-World War I film. But you can, you can see in it a lot of this just just disgust. And, and bitterness that's come down ever since then from people who were there who had to live through this and saw this and, and whose friends and family members died for absolutely nothing. That just wasted by their commanders who, <laughs> you know, I, I don't mean to say that any their sacrifices were for nothing necessarily. Um, I don't want to be disrespectful, but just, just to highlight the, the callousness of the officers and how, you know, uh, the, a lot of the men at the time, I think, thought they were being wasted for nothing.
0: And they write about it. Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, I interpreted this very much as an anti-war film, rather than you know just an anti-world war one film.
1: Yeah, I just had a weird perspective, I think.
0: Yeah, and I just, I just, I read this bit off Wikipedia now because I think it was interesting what I read before. So it says um, Kubrick's filmography shares many visual elements, but thematically, the most frequent subject, even more than sexuality, is war. Uh, Doctor Love presents war as a farce; its absurdity and pointlessness evoked through comedy. Fear and desire demonstrates that the extreme stress and trauma of war can lead to the mental breakdown of soldiers, to a point where they are insanely committing war crimes against the civilian population, thereby effectively abandoning the wage purpose of the war in the first place. Full Metal Jacket enters the mind of a soldier and tells the audience that they they may not like what they hear. Spartacus, which also stars Kirk Douglas, uh, also shows the horrors of war, uh, much like Barry Lyndon and Clockwork Orange, with its many references to World War II and other conflicts. Um, so I thought that was was you know interesting that these themes of war are there throughout Kubrick films. I mean, I I have seen quite a few Kubrick films. I would probably consider him my favorite director, and and certainly, you know, it it war is a is a theme that's present throughout a lot of his filmography, even in one of his you know earlier earlier films like this. Obviously, in 1957, like you said. So I gave this film five stars. Um, I mean, I'm a sucker for Kubrick, um, and I'm a sucker for war films. Uh, so it was sort of an easy five stars to give me, uh, to to, to give to the film. I was watching, and it reminded me of a film uh, from 1980, um, an Australian film called uh, Break a Morant, which was also based on a book as well, I believe, as was uh, Paths of Glory. I mean, I was looking up Kubrick the other day, actually, and I've realised so many of his works, I mean, not that it's an issue or a problem, but but so many of his works were adapted from novels, or, 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 books. You know, if if you look at his his filmography, you know, so much of it was was adapted. You know, whether it was something like you know Paths of Glory, like I said, like later, um, two thousand and one, A Space Odyssey, Clockwork Orange, The Shining. You know, so much of his work was was adapted from other other sources. But look, you know, I I, I thought this was fantastic. Um. I've only ever seen Kirk Douglas in one of film, um, which was uh, Gunfight at the OK Corral, which I think is a great film. But this, this, yeah, I mean, he was obviously incredible in this film. Um, and, and, and just to uh, sort of diverge there, um, so to, to to get back to Breaker Morant, so, so Breaker um, uh is, is another true story. This was sort of loosely based on a true story. Breaker Morant, I'll read the letterbox synopsis, because um, that sort of sums it up. Well enough to where you can see why I'm comparing it. um So it says during the Boer War, three Australian lieutenants are on trial for shooting Boer prisoners. Though they have acted under orders, they are being used as scapegoats by the general staff, who hopes to distance themselves from the irregular practices of the war. Uh, the trial does not progress as smoothly as expected by the general staff, as the defense puts up a strong fight in the courtroom. So that's sort of different, but it 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 reminded me of. You know, there's there's someone in that film, you know, like Kirk Douglas's character in this film, someone who, you know, takes on their case as a lawyer and who is who has integrity and he wants to save these people from being, you know, wrongly executed. Um, you know, there's there's generals in that film, much like those in this film, that couldn't care less about what happens to their men and, and they just want to, you know, set an example as it were. And yeah, that film I also gave five stars. Um, it's sitting at a three point nine average on Letterboxd, so it's quite highly up there um, but I thought that was fantastic as I did Paths of Glory I mean like you said you know so much to like in this film you know the camera work as you'd expect from a cubic film I mean like you said everything's in its place everything is 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 perfect in that sense because he was a, a perfectionist um in the in the good sense of the word
1: yeah notoriously
0: so not music so much but the way the sound was used the explosions and the machine guns and the drums and hmm yeah, you know, the whistles as it go like over the top you know all of that just added so much to it um just you know put production wise you know technically you, you can't fault this film so kirk douglas outstanding even some of the other you know actors i mean the, the three people who were who were killed i thought were good um you know the two generals you know, were great. Yeah, they were. I hated them because they were so good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, very effective. And yeah, just you know, the messages that got across about you know anti-war and I mean, I, I'm not going to repeat what you said. You said it, you know, better than I could. But it's it, it's it's that old you know saying which has been used you know probably for about 100 years now. I mean, I don't know when it actually came about, so I could be wrong in that sense. But you know, lions led by donkeys. You know, and originally that was applied to the British Army, if I'm not wrong, but. Certainly, you know, based off this film, it could be applied to the French army too, right? So, I love that quote, and I'll just read it in in full here. Um, Kirk Douglas's character goes to one of the generals and says says the other general, like you said, fired you know, tried to fire on his own army uh, to get them out of the trenches. The general who he tells believes that Kirk Douglas's character, Colonel Dax, he believes he did that to get the other general's job. He didn't, he just did it because obviously it's the right thing to do. Um, And so the, the general says to him, "'You've spoiled the keenness of your mind by wallowing in sentimentality. "'You really did want to save those men, "'and you were not angling for Moreau's command. "'You are an idealist, and I pity you as I would the village idiot. "'We're fighting a war, Dax, a war that we've got to win. "'Those men didn't fight, so they were shot. "'You bring charges against General Moreau, "'so I insist that he answer them.' Wherein have I done wrong? And Kirk Douglas's character goes to this great close-up of his face and, and he responds, Because you don't know the answer to that question, I pity you. And I thought that was... That line summed up the whole point of the film, you know? That these generals, like you, like you said, they didn't give a fuck. They didn't care. These people were just expendable to them. They're just cannon fodder, you know. To to to, to use a term of its day, it it doesn't matter to them that you know the operation was you know launched within a day and and even if it had been launched within a week, you know, or a month, it still probably would have been unfeasible. Let alone a day's notice. You know, we we as the audience can see the factors that that led to it. It's uh. You know, impossibility in in being completed, but you know. Oh, they
1: make it quite apparent that this was an impossible uh, impossible test that was pushed for it anyway. I mean, they they really spell it out for the audience,
0: which is good. You know, to to this crazed general Moreau, he doesn't. You know, facts are not important. He just all he cares about is getting. You know, them capturing Vientiel the because you know what's in it is a promotion for him. So I think you know it it really laid bare that incompetence. And you know, for me, I've never been particularly interested in World War One. You know, I'm much more fascinated by World War II uh, and, and the Vietnam War. I'm really interested in the Vietnam War. And I, this certainly would be, you know, would be up there in terms of, you know, one of the best, well, obviously one of the best films ever, full stop. But certainly, you know, you, you couldn't make the case, I'd argue off, off you know, and speaking as someone who hasn't seen them any or one films, but you could make this, you could make the case that this is, you know, one of the best you know, or, or the best World War One film ever. Um I that's debatable, but um actually there there is another film I'd throw out there. It's not as good as this, but I I it does I do I have always held it out there and I've seen it a couple of times. Um it's actually a TV film, I believe. All quite on the Western Front, but from nineteen seventy nine, not V not the original 1930 whatever version, but yeah, but yeah,
1: 1930 is lauded as supposedly superior. I have actually not seen either of them, although I have read the book a couple of times
0: when I was younger. I'm very glad you picked it. As I mentioned to you and George, you know it is it was probably like top ten of you know films that are atop my ever growing watch list. I think it's like 826 now, which is ridiculous. Yeah, but it was probably like top ten of that list because I I love Cubic so much and I would want to see this as I want to see all his all of his films. Um, I want to see this forever. Um, So I was very glad you picked it, and I'm very glad I liked it. I'm very glad you liked it as well. Two out of three films have been positive. Let's move on to hopefully another positive film. So this was George's pick. It's called Seconds uh, from 1966, um, directed by John Frankenheimer. I was not familiar with that name. I have actually seen another one of his films, um, Birdman of Alcatraz from 1962. Um, which stars Burt Lancaster, which was good. It wasn't anything outstanding, but it was a good film. Um, but he's done other things, like more recently he did uh, Ronan in uh, 1998, um, starring Robert De Niro and Jean Reno of Leon the Professional fame. He did The Manchurian Candidate in 1962, um, which starred Frank Sinatra. Uh, the Train, 1964, also starring Burt Lancaster, and uh, Seven Days in May. Um, 1964, starring Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster. Um, so clearly he was a fan of Burt Lancaster, um, which, you know, Burt Lancaster's a really good actor, so fair enough. So this film does not star Burt Lancaster, it stars Rock Hudson. Okay, so yeah, I'll try to explain it as best I can, because it is uh, sort of complicated. It's probably easy to explain than arrival, rival, actually. Uh, a banking executive, a middle-aged banking executive, uh, called Arthur Hamilton. He, you know, he's successful, he has a wife, he has a daughter, um, but he is profoundly unfulfilled. Uh, he, he gets a call from his friend Charlie, who he thought was dead. Charlie says he he changed his identity through this, uh, this organisation known as The Company, you know, encourages Arthur to do the same. What The Company does is they fake, so, you know, like... If, if you were to go to the, com- uh, the company as a client, they would fake your death. They would make you into somebody else who has recently died. They, you know, they do extensive plastic surgery on your face. They, they you know, they even change things like, you know, your vocal cords and your teeth and your fingerprints, etc. Um, and you, you essentially take on the identity of this this person, you know, who has recently died. So Arthur Arthur does this. He he becomes uh somebody called Antiochus Wilson or uh, Antiochus, however you say it, or also known as Tony Wilson. He he lived in New York, um, when he was Arthur Hamilton, but now he's on this uh, you know, he's got this new identity. He he moves to um Malibu in California, um, into this community with other reborns that are like him, which you know, people that have also undergone this uh process. And he's given a, a career as an artist in, in his new life and he tries to sort of fit in and, and he meets he meets this woman on the beach called Nora and he sort of becomes friendly with her. They end up hosting a cocktail party and he gets very drunk and he starts speaking about his his former life, right, about his former identity, which is not allowed. Charlie calls him and says, oh, you, you know, by doing this, you basically, you know, put yourself in danger and you're not allowed to do this, etc. And he says that Nora was not, you know, Nora was not a a a normal person she was a she was an employee of a company so you know he gets upset by all this of course and he he goes back to his 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 home in New York you know when when he was Arthur Hamilton uh and he he meets his wife and he poses you know well he, he is an artist you know in his new life but he poses you know oh I was a friend of Arthur's you know can you tell me about him And she says that, you know, Arthur was emotionally disconnected and that, you know, she couldn't really understand him. The company comes in and picks him up and he says, you know, I want another identity. I'm not happy with being Tony Wilson. I want a new identity. And they say, okay, well, you have to refer someone to us, right? Because that's how, uh, you know, this company works. As as one of them says in the film, you know, we can't advertise them in newspaper or magazines, obviously, so it's all word of mouth. And he says, well, I don't know anybody who can recommend, because, you know, the people he knows, well, one of them is Charlie, who has already had this process done, Um, and all the other people he knows are, you know, certainly he knows in his new life, are are already reborns, you know, everybody he met in, in Malibu, everybody there was a reborn, right? Um so he he doesn't know anybody to recommend and he's he's put in this waiting room of all these other people also including Charlie who's there. Everybody in that room has said i've been reborn once i'm not happy with who I was reborn as i want to I want to be reborn again. What happens to Arthur and presumably Charlie and presumably every man in that room um Unless they provided a referral, but even then even you know even if they provide a referral, maybe this still happens to them who who knows they get killed um so Arthur is you know he he believes he's going off to be reborn again, you know, assuming another identity, but he's actually um uh, being taken in to be killed, said that okay, well, your body is is now going to be used for somebody else to allow them to be reborn and and the film ends with a uh, you know this sort of distorted image of of him you know playing with his daughter on the beach Um, but you know you're left to think well is it him because the person sort of looks like Tony Wilson and not Arthur Hamilton fades to black and he dies Um, so that's a plot of a film I gave it four stars Uh, I thought it was a great film I thought it was you know much like Arrival it was very interesting in the themes it brought up and discussed and presented etc what did you think? At the low end,
1: I would give this three and a half stars at the low end. Um, probably sitting more close to two or four. It is a very good film. It was very interesting. Um, yeah, I got, I got some David Lynch vibes here and there. Uh, the camera work was really interesting. It was very kind of in your face, the camera work. I, like this movie had kind of a personal space issue, man. But I liked it. It was, it was very, uh, it made it feel claustrophobic. It made it feel kind of stuffy, you know. Yeah, and it it was very effective. That it made made you feel kind of just like slightly unnerved, like the whole time. Like it just it did that to kind of get under your yeah, it did that to kind of get under your skin, and it did a good job. You know, the movie itself, or the themes, or the uh, you know the situations don't put you off. The you know just the filming of it is supposed to do.
0: Yeah, the tone of it, yeah. right?
1: And it kind of just accentuates the the disturbing uh, stuff that it's going for. Um, I do think it kind of lagged in the middle. I got you know when he was in his life i wasn't getting as much of the like deep sense of dread under the surface of like everything being kind of a setup like i I know what they were going for that like you know everything feels fake this is the truman show like everyone's in on it you know a little paranoia um and and i get what they were going for but i wasn't i just wasn't feeling it kind of in the middle of the movie i was getting a little um not quite bored. Bored's kind of a harsh word, but I was I was getting a little like I was ready for it to move on.
0: Yeah, no, that's fair. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and and it did all these interesting things in kind of the first act of the film and and then it kind of felt like it was doing fewer interesting things. It was a little less innovative as it kind of got stretched out into the second act. I, I don't know if I'm explaining it properly. Um the third act it did, it did pick up a little bit. Honestly, I think some of the best scenes were when he's actually in the the company office like discussing the changes and you know that kind of thing. It it didn't completely blow me away, but it it was very interesting. It was it was very original. Um, I can see uh you know kind of like where a lot of films afterwards kind of drew inspiration from this. It, some of the camera work was really interesting. I loved the one where he's moving through the party and he's kind of drunk and and they had like the camera harness on him where it follows him over the shoulder. That this is the earliest example I can think of of a film that has done that. I'm wondering honestly if this kind of invented that shot. It's it's a damn it's a damn good film. I just would have liked a little bit more spice from the second act. You know, a little little less mundane. I wish they would have they would have uh, cranked up the you know the the unsettling heat a little bit. It's kind of simmering below the surface because it's I think it's supposed to feel like a slow boil. You know that and it never and it felt more like a simmer to me. But the the performances were fantastic i had no problems with performances at all honestly even more than rock hudson the guy who plays uh, that character before his transformation i think was actually even superior he was phenomenal yeah i don't know it was it was a great movie i'm just uh, struggling to find more to say about it i definitely do want it in my collection um absolutely it was a great it was a great pick from george it's not my favorite pick of his but it's still it's still an absolute fantastic movie like i'm i'm not trying to drag it down i'm it's at least an easy three and a half star, if not
0: a possible four star for me. I mean, everything you said, I, I also thought, so I agree that it did drag in the middle. I agree that, you know, I wanted more of that unnerving and quality because... It, it, it felt like it leaned away from it yeah. a little bit. It, it was kind of a perplexing if that was unnerving. Yeah, because, you know, that that's, that's the whole point of a film is, is okay, you've been given this new body, you've been given this new life, but something's not right and you're not happy with it, but it, it didn't, you know, it never really sort of showed that as such or, 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 like you said, leaned into it as much as it should have because this was a horror film in part. It was a psychological horror, I mean, you know, but it was like, you know, it's a horror film. I put it in my horror films list because, it, it, you know, it's it's a science fiction film but it's a horror film. And so, yeah, I agree. I, I wanted more of that unnerving, you know, I'm in the wrong body sort of quality. I did love the ending. Well, yeah, and the ending was probably what bumped it up to four stars for me. I, I probably had the three and a half as well. Yeah, it was fucking dark, and I liked it. I liked how dark then, it was. Yeah, I, I did think this is going to go on your dark ending list.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's almost kind of nihilistic. It, it kind of it says a lot about kind of the midlife crisis and this fantasy fulfillment of guys getting into the thirties and forties. And, and I'm in my thirties, you know, approaching my forties. I mean, I get it. Um, But it it had a unique take on that. And I, I love, you know, one thing horror movies can do well is take something mundane like that and then turn it into a horror movie by just making something feel off. I don't know. It, it kind of felt like filmmakers wanted you to look at this thing, which it's kind of this acceptable thing, this midlife crisis. Like, you know, it's almost, um, it's almost proverbial, you know, that, 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 this midlife crisis kind of thing that, that a lot of people go through. And, but it, it kind of, um, it kind of shakes that up a little bit and says like, okay, if you dig into this fantasy fulfillment, but we come back full circle where the movie is kind of forcing you to look at yourself and to kind of look at people and, and this kind of, um, this midlife crisis thing and it it kind of perverts this whole thing into being less, uh, easygoing, less funny. You know, people joke about the midlife crisis kind of thing, but this is much more in your face. It's much, it's kind of confrontational almost. Um, and th- that is one thing that I got out of this film that I think it, it very successfully did deliver. It's a very confrontational film.
0: Interestingly, I've just I've just read now, you know, Frankenheimer wanted Kirk Douglas for this role. Oh,
1: fuck. This, this would have been so good with Kirk. And I, He was
0: he was unavailable, but oh, he wanted him. So. I mean, Rock,
1: yeah, Rock did a great job, but Kirk Douglas, I mean, after seeing Paths of Glory, yes. oh, fuck, <laughs> I, I will be fantasizing about some of the other movies I could have seen him in. Can you imagine him in uh, Dawn of the Dead? <laughs> because <laughs> that was the same time frame yeah. that just came out, Dawn of the Dead. Can you imagine him in Dawn <laughs> of the Dead? The main guy who dies at the end? Holy shit.
0: That would be great. So it's a deep fake that. <laughs> and then the director also <laughs> offered it to Lawrence Olivier, who accepted. Really? Uh, but Paramount Pictures objected um, because they didn't feel he was a big enough star at the time.
1: <laughs> Lawrence Olivier, not a big enough
0: scar, star. <laughs> wow. Um. So then uh, Rock Hudson was a... Uh, was, was picked and yeah so i mean I, yeah i thought he was he was a great pick but i agree with you i think john randolph who played the original of hamilton i thought he was he was fantastic as this you know yeah
1: something about yes. him and his delivery yes. was just mesmeric
0: yeah i 100% agree he he like thrived in the close-up he absolutely lived there he exemplified that like unsettled unsettling vibe right because that's what like he was you know he was you could tell he he didn't feel right about where he was at in life but he didn't feel right about going ahead with this evil he was sort of stuck between okay I don't like my life now but I don't, I don't really want to undergo this drastic thing and and obviously you know they they talked him into it as such by blackmailing him into you know Looking like he sexually assaulted this woman, you know they drugged him and set up this whole thing of whether, like, well, if you don't sign these papers, we'll release this film. But I, I you know, and I think another person who stood out to me was the, the the old guy who was like, you know, the founder of the organization who was played by an actor Will Gear. I'm not familiar with him. He looked like a carny though. Yes. Like is it just me? Well, that's his thing, oh right? His, like, you know, he's selling a dream. You know, um, it's yeah, it's true. And so yeah, I thought he he was really good. It was interesting when I was watching this film, I was sort of. Comparing it, and this might seem like a weird comparison at first. I was comparing it to something like It's a Wonderful Life. It, it, I mean, It's Wonderful Life obviously, you know, is different in that um, uh, George Bailey, you know, he doesn't take on someone else's body, he just disappears, right? He's like, hey, I'm being given a glimpse to see what life would be like without me. And this one, obviously, you know, it's a similar thing, but he's sort of gone to someone else's body. But like, I, I guess the comparison I was drawing, like, is. If It's a Wonderful Life is, like, the happy and answer to what if I was someone else or what if I wasn't around, this is the, like, terrifying answer to what if I didn't exist or what if I was someone else.
1: Yeah, this is kind of the 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 flip side of that coin.
0: Exactly. This is, like, the nightmare version. And I, I don't think this is... This was a great film. I don't think it's as good as It's a Wonderful Life. That is, like, one of the best films ever. The themes that it presented, I think, are very interesting to me. And they're not... I mean, now you see them a you know, lot of science fiction but certainly first time you know mid-60s this idea presented like you said a middle life crisis i mean it's been happening you know for 100 years or more i'm sure but it 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 sort of answered that question okay well you can be somebody else look at what happens you know it's it's you know it's that thing of the grass isn't always green you know okay maybe you take on a new identity he's just as miserable he's probably more miserable actually um, than he was, you know, in his original, you know, body and life. So I think, you know, those those themes were just very interesting, and you can see how, you know, this film, you know, probably inspired a lot of other, you know, films and TV shows that came after this that dealt with science fiction and dealt with, you know, people taking over other bodies and et cetera. I mean, that that opening sort of few minutes, you know, the credits and there's that like you said, very lynchy and very distorted off-putting camera angles of the face and there's just organ music and, you know, that was just this nightmarish quality and I wish it had leaned more into that. Like you said, I wish it had kept that weird of putting surreal vibe the whole way through
1: yeah it's kind of like it, it stopped leaning as heavily into its strengths to to explore things it wasn't quite as good at conveying
0: because you know that's the ba- basically foreshadows what's going to happen right that that whole scene is a nightmare yeah oh, and his life turns yeah. into a nightmare and i mean that ending I, I i didn't see that ending coming at all you know i maybe i was naively optimistic but i thought oh, okay he's he, he's gonna get another rebirth and that's that's all good you know And then obviously he doesn't, you know, he believes he's going to get there, but he gets taken to be killed. And that makes the line that he says um, to to Charlie, and I'm just going to quote this now, and I just want to make sure I'm quoting it as it is. Just let me find the exact quote. Charlie gets picked to, to. we believe at that, at that moment, oh, he's also getting, re, re, you know, reborn again and he's he's finally been picked um, and, you know, he, he he says that line to Charlie, something along the lines of, you know, this time, you know, I think you're going to make it, Charlie, you know, this is the one. And then, you know, a few minutes later, he gets taken off, you believe, also to be reborn again, but it's actually he's getting killed. I mean, you sort of come to the realization that's what happened to to Charlie, and that's presumably what was going to happen to every man in that room. And it makes it sort of this, you know, devastatingly tragic ending, uh, because, you know, you were rooting for him, and you're thinking, okay, well, that the first rebirth didn't work out, but the second one's going to do it, and, you know, you realize that there is no rebirth. He's going to die. You, you know what else was tragic to me, that I, now that I think about it? You know that scene where he went
1: back to the house from his old life.
0: Yes. He yep.
1: didn't go back for his family. You ever think about that? That's kind of tragic too. He didn't go back for his family. He went back for a piece of his old personality, um, something from his old life, but not his family. He he didn't seem to give a shit about his wife. Even when he went back, and like I get, you know, the setup that they put in that that, that that's kind of like it just devolved into this sort of loveless partnership. Um, but, um, I, I think that's kind of sad too. He didn't go back for his family. He didn't go back to try and reconnect with his daughter or anything. He just, he went back for a piece of himself that he left behind, but, but not the familial ties. I, I was just thinking about that. And that's kind of like, it's a, it's own little tragedy that, that it was all about him, you know?
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, like you said, he, he went back to figure out why, you know, like what he was doing wrong in his old life, basically, which when you think about it is moot because he's someone else now so it doesn't even matter what he did wrong in his whole life because he's not even that person literally anymore he's an entirely different person so and, and and that's the point I think maybe you know people could read this a lot of different ways and just say, oh it's a science fiction film about you know what if I was someone else but like you said there are those elements of tragedy there which gives it you know deeper thought and, and deeper meaning and, and obviously you know. Like I said at the start, it poses a lot of interesting questions and scenarios, and it's it's like you know Arrival, and but it's sort of a thought experiment, and I guess it's also like Paths of Glory, and that that too poses you know questions about war and and things about nature. I I feel like all the films you discussed this episode, you know, pose some pretty big, interesting questions for the audiences to ponder on.
1: Well, some of the best films too.
0: Well, on that note, uh, I think that wraps up episode twenty nine. Thanks everyone for tuning in uh, as always if you enjoyed today's episode we'd love it if you could give us a rating on apple podcast or spotify and we'll see you next week